This is the Agenda podcast. Uh, Today we launched here on the Agenda the second week of our climate conversations on Dubai I-103.8. A series of conversations that will run over three shows here on Dubai I-103.8 in association with Dubai Holding. And the build-up to the COP28 coming together at the end of the year. Two special guests, Tim Clark, are the CEO of the Dubai Waste Management Company, who set up this extraordinary waste-to-energy facility in the Al-Wasan area. And, of course, uh, Dustin from EnviroServe, talking about their latest e-waste campaigns. So, big focus on all things waste for our climate conversations today. There was also a big focus on air traffic control. Why? Because the issues that have blighted the UK airspace in recent times. Uh, Nick Humphrey was kind enough to join us to explain some of the details behind that one. Big focus on the US and all things Donald Trump in light of the fact that we have now got a date for his fourth court case to be heard in court. Uh, And there was even a drinking straw survey all the way from Belgium as well. Apparently, paper straws aren't all that we thought they were. So just a few of the stories that we covered right here on The Agenda, live under by I-103.8. It's time for our latest hit on this year's Climate Conversations. Climate Conversations on The Agenda. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. So, yeah, as I've been mentioning, uh, this is an initiative of Dubai Holding and, of course, uh, Dubai I-103.8 FM. Uh, Last week marked the 100-day countdown to COP28 taking place right here in the UAE. Majority of those conversations will be held up at the Expo site. But in the build-up to it... Uh, we have decided to schedule our own conversations, if you like. Climate Conversation brought to you by Dubai Eye 103.8 and Dubai Holding. Dubai Eye's deep dive into all of the environmental and climate stories making the headlines in the run-up to COP28 in November. Today, we're going to be looking at the issue of waste, something that is familiar to us all. But come on, let's face it. If you've lived in Dubai long enough, if you've been here in the region long enough, you likely heard that urban myth out there about all your rubbish ending up in landfill, regardless of whether you put it into different colour bins or otherwise. So I suppose the question we're really asking here is, is it worth recycling? Where does your rubbish actually go? What happens to it when it reaches its destination? Well, it's increasingly likely the answer to that last one is that it's turned into power. And that is now a reality because Dubai is now home to the world's largest energy from waste facility. The Dubai Waste Management Company is set to convert 1.9 million tonnes of municipal waste each and every year into sustainable energy. How? Don't ask me. But thankfully, we've got the man who can explain us to us all. Uh, joined live in the studio now for today's Climate Conversations uh, by the CEO of the Dubai Waste Management Company, uh, Tim Clark. Tim, thanks so much indeed for your time this morning. No problem. Morning, Tom. Good to have you with us. Now, listen, um, I've got a bit of skin in the game here because I've seen this extraordinary facility rise out of the deserts of the UAE and therefore have a sort of uh, idea of the scale that we're talking about, about the centre and the facility. For the uninitiated, for those that haven't seen it, haven't seen um, the building itself now as it comes to to, to reality, haven't seen the the, the scale drawings, etc. How do you explain it to them? 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a very large facility of its type uh, uh, as an energy from waste facility. Um, compared with power stations, it's it's a very similar to large power stations. We've got five boilers, which will consume the waste, and a very large steam turbine, uh, which generates the electricity. Um, stack stands 65 metres high, and we've got waste bunkers that will hold uh, four days' worth of, uh, of waste supply for the, the plant, around about 20,000 tonnes of waste in the bunkers. So it's a very big facility, uh, uh, very large machinery, very uh, uh, extensive control systems, exhaust gas cleanup. So it is very much a, a very large industrial facility, one of the largest construction projects going on in Dubai at the moment. Waste to energy. Um, mm-hmm. Is this is this new uh, or is this uh, or obviously are you bringing to bear new science, new technology to something that's been done for many years? Now, the, uh, the idea of, um, of taking uh, waste and combusting it to provide energy has probably been around for about 60 years. Um, some places around uh, Europe were building um, waste-to-energy plants back in the 1970s. So it's not new technology, but uh, very much in the past it's been uh, building off the technology from coal-fired power plants, where uh, over the last uh, 20 years it's become much more sophisticated because of the controls on environmental emissions. One of the problems with burning waste is, unfortunately, we throw away a lot of things that got heavy metals, uh, chlorides in the, the plastic, and that turns into things which are not good for the environment. So you have to have a very sophisticated gas cleanup uh, equipment to make sure the emissions are of a level which are acceptable to put it out into the atmosphere. So that's really been the big development and why uh, there's been such a focus over the last 15, 20 years to arrive at the very sophisticated plants uh, such as we're building here in Dubai. The numbers that we're reading at the moment, 1.9 million tonnes of municipal waste each year. I mean, again, that's just a number on a a piece of paper for me at the moment. Put that into context in terms of how much of that is the waste that we generate on a yearly basis here? Well, it's uh, roughly 45% of uh, Dubai's total um, domestic, industrial and and commercial waste output. So we'll be taking around uh, 1.9 million tonnes, as you say, of roughly just a little over 4 million tonnes of waste that's currently produced every year. Um, Obviously... Dubai municipality is trying to focus a little bit on trying to reduce waste on the on the front end, but obviously, with the way that uh, life is here, it's kind of difficult to to reduce waste in 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 that sense. So they're more focused on uh, having an alternative to the disposal. So they they want to uh, head for this uh, zero to landfill for 2030. So we'll be contributing 45% towards that. So 45% of the waste that currently up until recently has been going to landfill will now be uh, put through our plant and and combusted. Um, Just in terms of figures, probably things people realise a little bit more, it's 5,500 tonnes a day. Mm. Roughly a compactor wagon picking up from your apartment is around about 10 tonnes of waste. So effectively, we're going to be around about uh, 800 vehicles a day, 700, 800 vehicles a day coming into the plant unloading their waste and leaving so so a lorry about every minute and a half extraordinary um logistics that must go into an operation on the on this scale it is it's uh, very organized i mean dubai municipality has to organize all of the logistics of the of the waste obviously at the moment they're going out to landfill but they've got to be rerouted into our plant now uh we've got to make sure the waste is coming from the right places because we have to look at the calorific value of mm. the waste now rather than just burning anything um so there is a, a lot more organization required from dubai municipality to uh, to get the right waste in the right quantities to us every day and that was going to be my next question to you about the waste i mean when i 
throw away or, or put into uh, the, the, um, the the green bin at home uh, all the packaging that comes in from various e-commerce things that are being bought at the house, etc. Am I guaranteed that that is going to go to your facility? Is that my responsibility or is that someone else's responsibility? Now, at the moment, um, it, we take what's politically called black bag waste. So whatever you throw away down your waste chute comes directly to, to uh, the DWMC plant. As I say, around 45%, but obviously that's Dubai Municipality's choice which mm. uh, collection areas they send to, to us, which collection areas uh, remain going to landfill. So you don't really have that choice at the moment. But um, I think what's important to, for everybody to realise is that you know we whatever waste you're throwing down your chute now, we're doing something practical with it rather than putting it to landfill. Mm. Two important things with that. Um, one is that we're recycling the metals. The ash that remains will go into a construction, and obviously the power is the is the uh, main output that we have. So we'll be producing around about 2% of Dubai's electricity from this uh, this process. Um, sort of one of the things that I, I say to people to put it in perspective is, you, you know, you can throw your, throw your rubbish bag down the, the chute and then the following evening you can charge your phone with the electricity. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's how quickly it's going to be uh, processed. So there's no deterioration of the waste. It doesn't rot. So the main thing, uh, benefit, is the uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the waste sites are dramatically cut. Um, because we're producing 200 megawatts of electricity, that's not produced with gas. In, in Dubai, so there's a saving on the fossil fuel side. So the net result of that is over the 35 years of the project, there's a 65 million tonne CO2 saving for Dubai through uh, operating this plant. You mentioned earlier on about um, zero to landfill um, sort of ambitions here in the region at the moment. Is that part of the sort of net zero ambitions as well? Is that all guiding towards the same direction? Uh, yes, I suppose so. Um, obviously, Dubai Municipality under His Highness Sheikh Mohammed's uh, uh, Sustainable Dubai Initiative uh, have uh, created their own programmes, one of which is this zero waste to landfill by 2030. So they're very much targeted just on, on eliminating the landfill. Um, Obviously, the recycling is another part of that. So I think other entities now uh, are coming into the into Dubai to suggest things that they can do with the waste. So kick off the uh, the recycling element. So, but Dubai municipality is very much focused just on the zero to landfill as part of their uh, their policy for the next ten years. We've spoken a lot about the the the, the waste that you are going to be um, burning, that are going to be generating as well. What about the conversion to energy? Um, what sort of form does that energy come in, and how much energy? can you produce okay so uh the waste comes in and it's obviously a mix away so in the bunker that we have we collect the waste we mix it to a certain extent to try and mix uh, wetter waste with drier waste uh, so try and equalize the fuel as we like to call it rather than waste for the boilers and then effectively it's loaded into the boilers each of the boilers consumes around uh, 45 tons of waste an hour so we're loading it directly into the boilers and it goes onto a a, a sloped grate so a little bit like an open fire used to be, but in the past, and air is passed underneath. The waste self-combusts because the heat of the combustion ignites the incoming waste, so there's no auxiliary fuel. So it's not really right to say it's an incinerator. It's the waste itself that is generating the heat. And all of the heat that comes out of that, that waste is then produced into the hot gases in the, the furnace, which is surrounded with water tubes. Uh, that boils the water, turns it into superheated steam, and then we use that superheated steam to drive a steam turbine, generate the electricity with a generator. So this is fundamentally sustainable energy and a sustainable energy supply? It is, yeah. It, it, uh, it, 
all depends on your view of waste. But obviously within Dubai, uh, uh, waste has been categorised as a sustainable fuel because mm. uh, the view is that it's it's always going to be here and it's an issue that we have to deal with, so it counts as, as sustainable. Um, so I think that's the key driver for Dubai, sustainability. When do you go live, Tim? Um, are you live at the moment? When do you go live? When are you up at full uh, operation and capacity? The, uh, the plant's been uh, built in two, two blocks. So uh, the, the first block uh, is the um, uh, two boilers, the first two boilers, and all of the auxiliary equipment, steam turbine. So we've completed that. We've done all the commissioning tests, and uh, it uh, completed last Tuesday, 22nd. Uh, we finished all the testing. It's just done its five-day reliability run. So effectively, as of yesterday, it's an uh, operational plant uh, and we'll be taking, uh, say, two boilers, so around about 2,200 tonnes of waste every day now will be built from from now forward. Operational yesterday and the CEO's with us here today. That's how much he's, he's, he's happy to talk all things climate. Absolutely amazing to have you here. I'm sure it's busy, busy time. Um, uh, COP28, just around mm-hmm. the corner, obviously going to be a big focus for you and the company as well. I mean, just to round this one up, uh, congratulations eh, to you and the team for all the hard work. Um, not your first rodeo. You've been in this sphere and in this business for quite some time. This is now being billed as the world's largest energy from waste facility. How proud are you and your team of the facility you have and you've built? I think it's a fantastic achievement. I think everybody in the team has contributed to it in small ways, whether it's the commercial people managing the EPC contractor who's actually built the the whole facility, the designers. Uh, what we've created is something that's quite exceptional, I think, uh, for Dubai, the scale of it more than anything else. It's more than twice the size of the next size plant. So it it is very, very much bigger. It also operates at uh, a higher steam temperature and pressure than any other waste facility so it means the efficiency of the conversion so we get more electricity out for every ton of waste than you would otherwise uh, have got from a more conventional um, uh, designed energy from waste plant so it, it is a tremendous achievement it's uh, huge uh, uh, for Dubai because it's the first uh, major plant that's been uh, uh, internationally financed under the international financing regulations for, for Dubai for the last 10 years or so. Um, and I think that's created a, a huge momentum in Dubai municipality, in our sponsors like Dubai Holdings, uh, ourselves as the company that's building it, and the whole team of uh, close to 4,500 people who've actually been building this plant. We're extremely proud of the fact that we, we've created something fairly unique. Uh, It's a fantastic facility for the next 35 years and it's going to make Dubai a sustainable city for the whole of that next third of a century, which uh, I think is a tremendous achievement. And and everybody, myself, and every member of my team, I think is proud to have been on this. And I'll just point as well, we've... We've had a very, very strong focus on on time delivery, on uh, uh, on cost delivery, and uh, uh, the safety on the site. And we're really pleased to have con- concluded almost uh, eighteen, almost nineteen million man hours working on site. And we've had very, very minor. Uh, safety issues so I mean it, it's fantastic for all of the guys working on site who normally in a construction industry you'd expect a level of injury we've avoided all of that so it's been built to the highest standards as well 
Congratulations to you, Tim. Uh, Tim's the CEO uh, of, of course, the brand new Dubai Waste Management Company, who are very much uh, setting those climate conversations uh, into motion at the moment. Tim, can't thank you enough, especially a busy week like this for you as well. Thanks so much indeed for joining us live in studio. Uh, no doubt we will be speaking more uh, in the build-up to COP28, but for now, thanks so much indeed. Thank you, Tom. Big thanks to Tim Clark joining us live in the studio. Next up, we turn our attention uh, to EnviroServe as we continue our Climate Conversations. Climate Conversations on the Agenda. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. Uh, these are your Climate Conversations. You're joining us for Climate Conversations in association with our friends at Dubai Holding. Dubai Eyes deep dive into all of the environmental and climate stories making the headlines in the run-up to COP28 in November. Uh, today we're looking at the issue of waste. We've just been talking to Tim Clark, the CEO of the Dubai Waste Management Company, who built that extraordinary facility out in al Wasan 2. A lot of people text in actually saying, where is this new facility? Can we see it? Can you see it? We can't miss it, that's for sure. If you're driving down past Dragon Mart, uh, if you are driving past down International City, if you look out to the right-hand side, you will see this extraordinary new uh, infrastructure. It is huge, and it is, of course, a testament of what is, uh, well, some of the ambitions for the future here when it comes to the environment. Uh, let's look at the waste in all its different forms. Before the break, we were just learning about uh, Dubai Waste Management Company's new world-leading facility to turn municipal waste into sustainable energy. But what about the waste that can't be used in that way. We're thinking specifically about e-waste. That old laptop in your desk drawer, for example, those old iPhones, those old smartphones you've got kicking about the house somewhere. With people increasingly worried about the security of data, knowing what to do with your technological waste can be tricky. To find out more about what we should and should not be doing, not to mention where all that e-waste fits into the environmental picture as a whole, uh, time now to welcome two climate conversations here on Dubai 103.8 uh, by the director of EnviroSurf. It is, of course, uh, Dustin uh, Chernowski, who joins us now live in the studio. Dustin, always good to catch up with you and it, uh, the EnviroServe team all well. Everybody's doing great and it's a big year for us this year of sustainability. So there's a lot of light being shone on our industry and we're soaking it all up. It must be a weird one for you guys because, you know, EnviroServe, no stranger to this studio, no stranger to the airwaves here. Um, Long-term advocates for uh, repurposing of waste as well, uh, tech waste, e-waste in, 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 in this case. Um, but a message that you've been spreading for many years, and then all of a sudden, everyone's talking about it at the end of this year. It's funny, you know, people go, wow, you're, you're in the right industry just at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Stuart, who's been in this industry for 20 years with Brian. But um, no, it's, it's, this is our time, you know, and COP28, of course, is bringing a lot of attention to sustainability. Although e-waste is not technically on the, uh, the official agenda, it is a side conversation. And uh, we're seeing the benefit of that. Even there's some crossover with uh, Tim, who was just on right before me. Yeah, it's fascinating looking at the, the investments going into it. And as you say, long-term investment from EnviroServe. So to that end, e-waste. Why? What, what should we be doing with e-waste? What's the EnviroServe sort of mantra when it comes to e-waste? Treat it differently. Okay, it really doesn't belong in the typical waste stream. It should be separated out. Um, if it can make it to our facility, it'll be treated properly, which effectively what we do is crush it and separate out all the different uh, raw materials like iron and copper and aluminium and things like that. But the challenge that we're having in our industry right now is getting it from your drawer to our facility. And that's where the waste management companies come in, the collectors and, and things like that to get it to us. 
So that's an area that we're focusing on right now. Once you get it, and everyone keeps campaigning, that you know, I get it in the neck all the time, Dustin, about how old my phone is. You know, I've got one camera on it and it's all broken up, etc. So if I were to prize this away from my hands, give it to you, and I get it to you, what happens next? Does any of that land up in a landfill or not? Some of it, unfortunately, will. And that's, you know, that's the reality of the situation. Um, if we all think about it, anybody who's listening now, how many phones you have sitting in that drawer, along with the cables, along with all the other bits, if they were to come to EnviroSurf, uh, we crush it, we extract out all the materials that we can. But some things, little flakes of glass, little pieces of plastic, little bits of rubber, for instance, are not recyclable. But uh, the vast majority is, which is great, as long as it makes it into the formal recycling stream, which we participate in. Uh, but what's exciting about uh, Tim, who was just on, mm. and uh, coming online of the waste to energy facility, which is effectively incineration, is that can help to solve those last few pieces, those little bits of rubber can actually go. Those little capacitors can go to a place for incineration and keep that out of the landfill. We've focused a lot on phones. Why? Because we all know that people have phones hanging around their house. They don't really know what to do with them as well. When we say Mm -hmm. e-waste, quantify e-waste for us. It's not just phones, is it? It's not. And I want everybody to remember this one thing. The E does not just stand for electronic. Mm. It's also electrical. Your toaster is e-waste. Your hair dryer, what we call dumb machines, that just switch off and on, okay? And then there's the smart machines like our laptops and our tablets and phones and things like that. But all that stuff, if it takes electricity, it's e-waste, battery, plug, or otherwise. I suppose one thing that a lot of people are concerned, one reason that so many phones end up in drawers or laptops as well is data protection Mm -hmm. as well. Can you calm some of the concerns, some of the nerves that people have about giving uh, old phones, old laptops to be turned into waste? Yeah, exactly. Well, look, I mean, we all know that the the highest value of those units is for reuse. And so it can be very, um, very enticing for yeah. the more unscrupulous collectors to reuse your devices. OK, uh, whether they maliciously access your data or just by accident trying to switch on a phone, they access your data. But that's why you want to get it into a formal program, a drop off point, um, an actual recycling program. A lot of what's happening now in the industry, you'll see it is there are drop-off points for such devices. Shraft DGs, the Jumbos, um, and such will do a take-back program. But to be honest, I wish I had better news for you. It is still very difficult to get mm. those devices from your drawer to our facility, and we're shifting our focus now um, with the support of some of the local authorities on how to make those programs more readily available to you because that is the number one reason you hit the nail right on the head that's why people don't let go of those old devices. How do people get it to you then? If people are not ready to wait for municipality to pick up, etc., how do they get it to you? Well, I would love for you to drive out to Dubai Industrial <laughs> City, but I can tell you that's 42 minutes from where I live. Um, it's not practical. And so uh, what you can do, you can organize an e-waste collection campaign in your office. Why not? It's a safe environment. Um, you can have it. Give us a call. We have a green truck service. Okay, we'll come by your house. We'll do a one-off collection for you. Um, any number of ways, if you can get a, a significant amount of e-waste in one location, uh, we'll come and collect it for you. So check out our green truck service. You mentioned uh, that the, the, those, the peers and colleagues that you work with, you know, they're working in this industry for over two decades, etc. But with it becoming so competitive at the moment, are we seeing a sort of rapid development when it comes to e-waste in general here at present? We're seeing a, a rapid evolution, mm-hmm. let's say, of the industry where the gray market is starting to disappear, and that's where regulations really played a great part. I think that's where the COP28 conversations come in. 
the, 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 the informal sector, you can say, the man with the van who comes around and, and dumpster dives. Okay, that's our, that's our informal industry. You don't know where that went after that person touched it. And that's why we don't like it. But if there are stronger legislation and, and laws around who can access communities, who can transport waste, who can export waste, then it tends to stay in the country and it will naturally, through sort of the macroeconomics of it, make its way to a treatment facility like ours, which, by the way, we can process 40 million kilos per year. 40 million. Even if we only recycled 50% of the e-waste in the UAE, we would be full. Mm. So it's not a hard target, uh, but at the moment, you can say we're operating under capacity, but that's changing as the laws are becoming more strict, and we're seeing uh, an increase in material coming to EnviroServe, which will then eventually support the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology strategy of make it in the Emirates. A couple of quick questions before we wrap things up. I've got about a minute or so left with you. A lot of people texting in about various bits and pieces of e-waste, etc. A lot of people asking about fridges. Does that come under the mantra? Is that a part of it? Fridges are e-waste. And a quick uh, you know, reason why they're sort of an asterisk there is they have refrigerant in mm-hmm. them. And so they should definitely come to a place like EnviroServe where at least we can capture the refrigerant gas. That's a sort of add-on division of what we do. It should not be going to the landfill because the easiest way to crush up a a uh, refrigerator is also the easiest and fastest way to vent that gas, which, of course, contributes heavily to depletion of the ozone layer. Looking at the electrification of the automotive industry at the moment, more and more electric vehicles on our uh, roads at the moment. What's the EnviroServe sort of house view on uh, the batteries in electric vehicles? Do we know yet? Oh, we love it. No. Yeah. <laughs> Did you read our <laughs> – we recently uh, uh, announced a huge partnership with DHL uh, around an EV batteries center of excellence. EnviroServe is processing the batteries. DHL is handling the movement of them. But as uh, a great example of how industries evolve, as those cars came online – five to 10 years ago, they're now coming offline with the batteries at least. And EnviroServe just launched a new division that we're handling those batteries safely. So great question. Thanks for that one. Uh, And final one, uh, obviously all roads lead to COP28. That's one of the reasons we're having these conversations at the moment. Uh, Just how significant, A, is COP28 going to be for all the team at EnviroServe? And how important is it for this part of the world, for this nation to be hosting it? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's huge. I mean, it really does focus our attention on sustainable initiatives. And like I said, although e-waste is not technically on the official agenda, mm. uh, the transition to uh, cleaner energy is. And in the same way that we can support, let's say, uh, Tim with his incineration facility to create that energy, in, you know, EnviroServe does play a part in that chain. So it's a nice opportunity for the industry to come together and have those conversations. DC, I know it's a busy time for you, so I'm going to let you get on. But thank you so much indeed for taking time out to come and see us here in the studio. Uh, he is the director of EnviroServe, uh, Dustin Chernowski. Thanks very much indeed. All the best to the team. Thanks, Tom. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Let's start, though, with eyes to the skies. Uh, Let's talk air travel if we can, because uh, obviously one of the big stories of the day uh, is the uh, air traffic control crisis that has uh, descended uh, across much of the United Kingdom, but had a knock-on effect across other networks in the last 24 hours. Uh, Passengers expecting travel from the UAE to the UK today are being warned to expect delays. It's after a major air traffic control outage across the UK. Yesterday, affected flights in and out of the country led to a knock-on number of cancellations across the whole of Europe. So I'd love to know if you've been affected by this. If you have, you know the numbers. 
Text on 4001, WhatsApp 04871 uh, And certainly the effects are being felt here at the moment as well. Etihad Airways says while it's currently planning to operate all flights as scheduled, journeys between the capital and both London and Manchester could be hit by delays today. Meanwhile, Emirates saying that while flights which have already departed the UA will definitely land across the UK as planned, return legs could continue to be delayed uh, for the foreseeable. Authorities in the UK warning disruption to services could potentially continue throughout the remainder of this week. But why? What caused this outage? Who's to blame? The blame game has started in earnest at the moment. Well, to discuss those questions, uh, we have turned to partner at transport specialist Norton White, who's been kind enough to join us by Microsoft Teams uh, this um, morning. It is a warm welcome and a good morning to Nick Humphrey. Nick, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Pleasure, Tom. Great to be here. So it sort of read like a bit of a, you know, it, it, almost like a sort of Hollywood film yesterday. It's the disaster that everyone's trying to avert. We know that there are so many processes in place to try and avert these issues. But basically, from your reading of the situation, what happened yesterday to lead to this sort of raft of cancellations? Well, what what did happen yesterday? Well, if, if we go by, I guess the only real data on this has come out of Nats which is the, they have the responsibility for, um, they manage air traffic controllers in the airports, but they also do the flight planning over the UK. So aircraft flying, which might not touch in the UK, you know, it's just ensuring there's basically safety 30,000 feet in the sky. Now, what they have said is that one of their systems, which automatically processes flight plans, um, was affected. So they then, in turn, were only able to manually deal with flights, which meant that, you know, considering the volume of flights involved, they had to impose, you know, mass cancellations to ensure that safety, they could only do limited flights. So the effects were, you know, from from some of the statistics that are coming out, as of yesterday afternoon, 232 flights were cancelled out of the UK airports. And 271 flights were cancelled that were to, due to be flying into the UK. Now, that those flights that would have been flying into the UK um, were mostly short-haul fight, flights where they could basically, they weren't already en route. Now, that's the problem. So, you know, if there's a flight coming across the Atlantic um, and it's already en route, then you're going to be cancelling the flight that's due to depart from Spain or France or wherever. Um they're the statistics. Um, now, who's to blame? Um, where will this fall? Well, dare I say, Tom, this is history repeating. <laughs> um, Nats had an issue back on the 12th of December 2014 where a very similar issue arose. So if we have a bit of deja vu, when we look back in history, we might see what the outcome is. I mean... The uninitiated will be looking at this and going, OK, we're being told the, the, by the people in control that there was a technical glitch, that they've now been able to sort out that technical glitch, uh, that technical glitches do happen from time to time, despite uh, everything that they do to prevent them. I suppose a lot of people will look at this, Nick, and go, OK, technical glitch, one thing. We all have those on a daily basis with our smartphone. But such widespread disruption, is that given an indication of sort of the knock-on effects when you have one part of the system breaking down yeah tom look this is going to be treated very seriously and the the reason i mentioned the incident in 2014 it it sort of indicates what might happen so after that incident very similar mind you it affected people a little bit more because it was pre-christmas um 
there was a board of inquiry which was convened within a couple of weeks um, in early January. Um, and this looked very closely at why this happened. Um, it had a lot of recommendations to the UK CAA, which basically has the regulatory oversight of NATS. Um, and also, is this organisation investing enough? What are its systems like? Why does this happen? And I guess it's the old one in 50 year storm that's happened in less than nine years. There's a problem. So this is going to be looked at pretty seriously. And if you're the, one of the, you know, I guess someone who's going to the UAE um, on squeezing that tiny bit out of your holidays more than the others and leaving the kids out of school for day number one and you expected them to be back at school today, there might be a few people sitting there in some Spanish resorts waiting. Um, obviously, with events that are going on around the world and events we've seen uh, in recent times, the United States, other parts of Europe, etc., mm. whenever there is a, an issue that, well, cybersecurity is called into question, uh, there are suggestions, uh, either hushed or otherwise, of potential foul play. Possibility here? Well, there's nothing to indicate that that's the case. Um, you can't rule it out. And I guess at the moment... Um, if that was the case, there's no in information by Nats, the UK regulators, anyone else to indicate that it is. Um, that will come out in due course in respect of any inquiry that will emerge. Um, look, you know, these cyber um, incidents are, you know, one of the highest priority in the aviation industry now. Um, and doubtless that, um, you know, the, the Nats who has got the control of the you know, UK airspace um, has systems in place. Now, one thing is, even though there was this outage, there's nothing to suggest that there was any compromise of safety as well. And to that end, I just wanted to pick up on the safety element uh, as well. We know that you know the, 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 the art, the science behind air traffic control is one that is driven by safety and security uh, throughout the proceedings as well. I mean, Again, does this shine a light? A lot of us focus on pilot. A lot of us focus on airline, etc. Does this shine a light on the importance, the, the extraordinary importance of the hard work of air traffic controllers who are working under such high stress conditions? It's, you know, aviation is a dynamic ecosystem where um, one component is as important as another. And air traffic control um, stress and um, overworking has been an issue as a human factor. It's been analysed for a number of years and it's, it's managed pretty well these days. Um, but it's, it has come, particularly come to light post-COVID and staff shortages. So there have been, um, the shortage of air traffic controllers has been seen as one of the reasons for certain flight cancellations over the course of time, um, particularly when airports were reopening post-COVID. That's an interesting point as well, because we've been talking, haven't we, about the fact that aviation needs to recruit at the moment across the board as well. Is there an issue, given the fact that, you know, there's been so much written about the stress levels of uh, air traffic controllers, um, is, that, is that going to be an issue moving forward, getting more people into the job of air traffic control? Look, look I think this comes down to more of a, a funding issue. Mm. And... There is a, a constant battle between different stakeholders within aviation on how much they should charge and how much they should pay. Mm. Now, there's, you know, for example, at the, you know, the airport slash uh, airport services side, the airports and the likes of the Nats are saying, we need to increase our charges so we can invest in infrastructure, whereas the airlines are saying, well, they're too expensive and how are we going to make a profit? 
Um, and in that, you know, the, the airport service providers need to charge more to hire the talent and, you know, talent that has gone into other industries. So it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a balancing act um, amongst all stakeholders. Uh, Nick Humphreys, partner at Transport Specialist Norton White. He's uh, kindly given us his time and giving us his expertise. Also been joined uh, now by the produ- our producer, Jennifer Crichton, who's here live in studio. Jen's actually monitoring a number of the social media feeds from various airlines and airports. Uh, how's it looking at the moment? It's not looking too bad, actually. We've seen quite a few sort of short delays with flights leaving the UAE for the UK this morning. Dubai Airport, things tend to look like they've mostly been running about 45 minutes behind schedule on UK flights this morning. We've had one delay into Abu Dhabi as well, but nothing particularly untoward, nothing particularly lengthy. I would say, since yesterday. We have seen Heathrow tweet, or X, this morning, apologising for the inconvenience. They say the issue has been resolved. However, schedules remain significantly disrupted. If you are travelling today, please ensure you contact your airline before travelling to the airport. And, of course, that's what Etihad and Emirates have said as well. They said they will be contacting passengers if there are any lengthy delays. But if you are in doubt, contact your airline. Nick Humphreys uh, with us this morning as well, partner at tra- Transport Specialist Norton White. Nick, um, do international flights to long haul or international flights, do they get preferential landing rights in situations like this? Well, typically they're managed um, because um, they can't be just turned around and you have to find an alternative air, um, airport. Typically they will be um, if they're en route. Lots of questions coming through about Money, funnily enough. Nick, go figure, eh? Um, uh, obviously, a lot of people saying, can I claim back? Um, is, there any, is there any way that people are going to get sort of uh, recompensed for uh, flights that have been changed, etc.? Uh, I suppose this is a two-way question. A, from a passenger point of view, will there be compensation? B, uh, for an industry that is struggling to get back to sort of pre-pandemic levels, this is probably the last thing they need, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, there's a there's a multitude of angles there, Tom. Let's let's deal with the uh, the passenger compensation aspect now. Um, you know, airlines have been subject, and I, I you know I'll put my hand up and say I think unfairly subject to certain um, uh, provisions under what was what's known as EC two six one delay cancellation compensation regime for a number of years. Um, now, one of the exceptions to that is an extraordinary circumstance, which is something that is outside of their control. Now, this is one of them. So passengers will not get recourse under that um, uh, compensation regime. Airlines do have obligations in respect of care and comfort. Um, However, seeking the immediate recourse against an airline is not going to be the outcome they need. And an airline's response to this is, well, this is the very reason you should tick that little box and get some travel insurance or get your own travel insurance. Um, now, look, the recourse against the um, provider of the service, um, this will be subject to certain conditions um, that they will be providing the service to the UK CAA um, and any recourse against them, I think, will be rather limited. Um, now, it is a you know something that the airline industry doesn't need. The airline industry is at having a bumper profit year. Um, but, um, you know, it doesn't need these little glitches because, unfortunately, the, um, those who will be subject to it will be, um, you know, where this, this elasticity demand exists, it'll be put onto the ticket um, for passengers. So um, 
So in short, sadly, no passenger compensation. And two, I think, um, you know, the recourse against Nats will probably be um, scrutiny by government regulators more than anything else. In terms of that, and obviously you highlighted a similar issue that we had about seven years uh, ago, um, which, again, one would have thought we gave an opportunity, therefore, for Nats and all those that affected to look at what could be done in the future. Given the fact this happened again now, uh, are these issues that people are um, suffering today, that the people are going through over the last couple of days, going to be, or how could these issues be avoided in the future? Can we learn from our mistakes? Wonderful thing about aviation and aviation safety, it's a learning system that it will always learn from incidents. Um, now, uh, Nats would have learnt and the UK um, aviation um, industry would have learnt from the incident in 2014. Um, it will be scrutinised why certain tech has, has not worked yesterday. Um, now, when we do a little update on our phone and we have a little issue, um, all it does is affects and gives us a bit of a, an annoyance. Here, it shuts down UK airspace. So, the, you know, the, the consequences are, are massive and it, it will bring into the debate about funding. Is there adequate funding and is there adequate future proofing? Um, one of the things, if we look more locally in the UAE, the UAE has invested significantly in a, um, a air, airspace um, restructuring program over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and it has some pretty sophisticated software that it uses and hardware that it uses to support that. Now, the, the system is not replicated around the world. And, and across the UAE, for example, UAE airspace, the UAE regulators did invest significantly. So that's one thing that we have in our favour over here. But as aviation, it's interconnected. So it's, it's, it doesn't help having one system that works and another that doesn't. And just so I'm clear on this, and I think a lot of other people just need clarification on this, does each country take responsibility of their own air traffic control? Or are there certain companies that, like duty-free companies, sort of outsource their resources and manage air traffic control in other countries? A technical question, Tom. Um, you've got so <laughs> airspace is broken up into flight information regions, and you will have um, different, typically state-owned entities that will be responsible for providing those services. So the company that provides these services is out of the UK, Nats. It used to be part of the CAA, and they basically it's a, a it's a private public enterprise. Um, so it has part partly, and you know you do that for certain continuity reasons. You know, one is to ensure that there is investment. You know, so, so the, you know, the UAE, it's not dissimilar who controls. So you've got Dan's in Dubai and you've got GAN's in Abu Dhabi who oversee different aspects of um, airspace. Um, so the system is, you know, mostly replicated and there is essentially a passover between flight information regions of who the regulator that controls that. So the uh, New Zealand All Blacks currently uh, in the UK at the moment, getting ready for the Rugby World Cup. The Wallabies, though, Nick, are in Australia already, so they're sorted. <laughs> oh, look, you know, just wait. We, we're going to have a good game against Georgia, Tom. It's, uh, it's, it's a nice team to start with. Uh, I'm sure we will be talking more about that in the future. Listen, Nick, I can't thank you enough for your time this morning. I know it's a busy time for you. So thanks so much indeed uh, for joining us live on the line for monitoring that situation and giving us some uh, expert insight. Nick Humphrey, partner, Norton White. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Tom. Big thanks to Nick for joining us live on the line. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8.
Well, we turn our attention now to one of the day's big international stories. A trial date has been set for Donald Trump on charges of plotting to overturn the 2020 US presidential election. Lawyers for the former president were pushing for it to begin in 2026, but... Uh, We now know it will now start on the 4th of March next year, eight months out from the next election and one day before the hugely influential Super Tuesday primary. Federal case is one of four criminal cases uh, being faced by Donald Trump. But as his re-election campaign says, it's raised well over 23 million dirhams since the former US president had his mugshot taken on Thursday, largely because they've been selling T-shirts with a picture on them showing him scowling at the camera. So is this court case just another boost for Trump's ambition to return to the White House to discuss that and other uh, elements and angles to this story? I'm now joined on the live uh, on the line live by... US political analyst Ari Kovler. Ari, thanks so much indeed for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Um, let's get your reasons first and foremost. How do you read this one, Ari, in terms of the reasons that the judge gave for this scheduling? How do you see it? Well, the general assumption in the United States is that people should have trials faster and sooner rather than later. It's even uh, considered to be a constitutional thing. Um, Trump wants to delay these trials as long as possible until after the election, because if he wins, he can potentially pardon himself or do other things that would make them disappear forever. So it's pretty clear what what Trump wants to happen. The later the trials are, the more likely they never happen at all. Um, The prosecution wanted them to happen as soon as possible, and the judge did not split the difference. She gave gave Trump a couple more months to prepare than he might have expected, um, but but still comfortably before the election, such that this trial may be over, should be over, before election day. Uh, and that is one of obviously four trials that Trump is facing. But now we know that there's a decent chance that one will be done before Americans go to vote. Was there any chance whatsoever? And did the Trump team really think that they could push this to 2026? Because as you rightly say, I mean, I think any observer of this uh, and what Trump teams wanted could read between the lines that there was a small matter of an election in the, in the, in the meantime. No, they didn't think it was possible. What they're trying to do is to set up a, an appeal, you know, assuming that they affect that Trump is found guilty. So they can then say they didn't have the time they needed. Um, And the more objections they can raise at this stage, that helps them potentially in appeals down the line, which I'm sure they expect to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, We'll have to see if that actually happens. But that's the game right now. Um, I will say that they have already delayed a lot. The reason this is happening now, it was revealed yesterday, it was yesterday, is that there have been a number of sealed proceedings where Trump essentially tried to delay people giving testimony delayed things by some months already um and, and in other cases it's also successfully delayed the reason why all of these things are happening now is because trump was able to delay things by about a year by already raising procedural objections to that end uh with all the chat around the criminal cases with all the media with all the press and everyone saying there ain't no thing as bad press etc uh with the fact that this one is very much uh, in the discussion box at the moment um is there, is there an argument to be made that these criminal cases, or, or rather the chat around the cases at the moment, is only strengthening the Trump campaign? Well, remember, America has two different campaigns. First, you need to win your party's nomination to run for president, and then you need to run against the other guy to win or lose. Um, I think it's pretty clear that in terms of the first question, 
whether Trump is stronger in winning the nomination of his party to be their candidate, this has absolutely helped him. Um, you know, it's made it extremely difficult for any of the other candidates to attack him because they're all running as a set, uh, as people who are saying, not all, but all of the viable candidates were running as people who are essentially saying, we love Trump, Trump is great, we can do Trump only a little bit better. Um, and now, in the face of what's happening, they feel in order to assuage their base, they have to say, you know, these prosecutions are unfair, they're, they're drummed up charges, it's persecution, it's a witch hunt. And, and you can't really say all that and then say, oh, but vote for me and not him. Uh, and we're seeing that the campaigns are really faltering. They're finding it very hard to drive forward. Meanwhile, Trump is his popularity amongst Republicans. Um, it's taken a little bit of a dip, actually, but amongst the primary voters, uh, people who actually will decide this race, it still seems to be extremely strong. Um, and it doesn't look like there's any realistic prospect of anybody else taking the nomination. Of course, when it comes to the general election, I think it's a bit more of a complicated picture. Ari, final thoughts from you. You've got about 30 seconds remaining. Uh, 4th of March, 2024. Uh, will we see Donald Trump being marched into court or is there plenty of time before then for things to change? We won't see it that day because actually the trial started means they start jury selection. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it might be another month or so before the trial proper gets underway. But I think it's highly unlikely that those dates are changed at this point. Trump says he'll appeal. That's not a thing. You can't appeal these dates and, and they're going to be stuck to. Ari, really appreciate your uh, insight uh, on this subject. Ari Kovler is the US political analyst joining us live on the line, live on Microsoft Teams to give us the latest uh, on the um, uh, charges being brought to bear against Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, with ambitions to become uh, the president again in the future. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Yeah, nice to have company this uh, morning. Still is the morning for the next seven minutes at least. Uh, do reach out to the team down here by texting us your thoughts to 4001. OK, uh, on now to what is an emotive issue. Uh, but how do you feel about paper straws? Mm-hmm. At this point, I reckon we've all experienced uh, soggy straw rage. Been there? done that. We tried to make one last the duration of a movie, uh, but we continue to favour paper over plastic for one reason, of course, the environment. Now, though, it seems it may be a futile exercise because researchers in Belgium have found that the majority of paper and cardboard and even bamboo and glass straws contain the same harmful forever chemicals as those that are found in single-use plastic straws. In the first analysis of its kind in Europe, a team from the University of Antwerp tested 39 sustainable straws in common public use and found PFAS chemicals in 69% of them. A total of 18 varieties of those contaminants linked with illnesses, including asthma and cancer, were present in most paper and bamboo straw options, while stainless steel was singled out as the only true clean option. So, what does it mean for our environmental efforts? Well, to find out, earlier, producer uh, Jen Crichton sat down with Timo Groffen. Uh, Timo is the environmental scientist who led the study uh, at the University at Antwerp. And she began by asking him how the research came about. The main purpose of this study was to investigate whether we could detect PFAS in paper straws and also other types of materials of straws which is more or less a follow-up of what was done in the U.S. by uh, by Tim China and colleagues. 
And they already revealed that plant-based straws contain PFAS. So we wanted to know whether this was also the case for straws that are commercially available on the Belgian market. And we elaborated or extended the scope to straws made out of plastics and glass and stainless steel as well. And yeah, we found out that the PFAS were present in basically all the types of materials except for the steel ones. And yeah, this was of course quite, quite shocking to us as well. Now, you mentioned PFAS there. Tell me a bit about what PFAS are, because they're not something I would have expected to find in, for example, paper or bamboo straws. Yeah, so so PFAS are, it stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which is a group of synthetic chemicals. Um, nowadays, it's estimated that there are over 10,000 different types of PFAS known and these chemicals, they are very useful in, in a lot of different applications because of their chemical properties. So they are very heat resistant, which makes them suitable for example, in, in nonstick cookware, um, but also in firefighting phones and in uh, clothing that firefighters, for example, wear. But they are also water repellent and stain repellent. So they are also used in rain clothing and they can be used as an addition or they can be added intentionally to these kind of paper products to make sure that they are stain and water repellent. And so why would they be used in straws that people would traditionally have thought of as being more environmentally friendly? I think the main purpose for PFAS, if they are intentionally added, because we are not sure about this yet, uh, but if they are intentionally added, this will be mainly to make sure that they are water repellent and that's of course your, your uh, straws don't get soggy very fast. As I said, we are not entirely sure whether these are added intentionally because another option could be that they could derive from contamination during the production process. Or in terms of these paper straws or bamboo straws, it could be possible that these plants have been grown on contaminated soils because PFAS are, are known to be spread everywhere across the globe. So what does this tell us about our efforts to perhaps be a bit more environmentally friendly, let's say, by avoiding plastic straws or by requesting even a paper straw, even though we all know that sometimes they go a bit soggy, they can be a bit annoying, they can be harder to use. I think most people have thought that they were doing good, but potentially they're not. I think that the the material itself is more sustainable than plastics because plastics, when they degrade, they become microplastics or nanoplastics or or smaller particles, which can be harmful on their own. Whereas with, with paper straws, the, the paper material is it's plant-based, so it yeah, degrades more faster and it's more sustainable. But what makes it unsustainable is the fact that there are PFAS in it. And these PFAS, when they end up in the environment, for example, through leaching in a landfill or when these straws are uh, incinerated at too low temperatures, these PFAS can still end up in the environment. And there they remain for a very long time period, which also gives them their name of forever chemicals. And they can also accumulate in, in organisms, including humans, but also in animals and plants. And yeah, that can cause severe toxic effects, on, especially on the long term in these, uh, in these organisms. Now, you mentioned you were surprised by these findings. What can they tell us and tell those listening about the choices that they can or, or should be making with regards to drinking straws? Yeah, I, I think that the main message is that we are should be aware that we are exposed to synthetic chemicals and other chemicals in many more ways than we can think of. And of course, this does not necessarily mean that we are at risk of, of, for example, getting cancer from this using of uh, using these paper straws. 
But uh, especially regarding PFAS, they are known to accumulate over time. So even though it's just a very small way of exposure for, for humans compared to other dietary intake routes, it's still important that it can be easily avoided uh, in many cases, not all, to use these kind of straws. Or you can just shift to a different type of material, which is known or which at least we saw that did contain any PFAS. And so what types of straws didn't use PFAS? What types should we be opting for until we know a bit more about this? So we, we tested for 29 PFAS ourselves. Yeah, as I said, there are over 10,000 different types of PFAS known, but it's impossible to, to test each of these in each straw. It's just, uh, for practical reasons, very difficult. And what we found out uh, is that these stainless steel straws, they didn't contain any of these 29 PFAS. And the 29 PFAS that we investigated are those that are most commonly found in, in the environment and also in production processes. Oh, that was Timo Groffen, the environmental scientist, who led that study into chemical contamination uh, within drinking straws, courtesy of the University of Antwerp.